That's good. That's good. All right, we're going to dismiss our kids. So you guys have a great time. They're going to do some Easter studying. We're going to do some Easter studying. That's all going to be good, right? So I'm just going to say this up front because I'm going to forget to say it if, if I don't say it otherwise. At the end of uh, the kids' Bible study today, the kids are going to do a little Easter egg hunt kind of thing out here, but it's a little chilly today. So I would encourage you parents, as soon as, as, soon as we're done, we're, you know, I'm going to preach, we're going to pray, we're going to sing again. But after that, um, you can sneak out right away, try to see if you can see any of that. We don't want to hold the kids too long on the egg hunt because it's so cold. We don't, just don't want to stand around outside too long. So, uh, but um, any of you who don't have kids out there, but you want to see kids do that, what a fun thing to do, right? So, so here's what I want to do today. Uh, I want you to open your Bible if you have it. Um, if you don't, there's Bibles in the back. We give them away for free. Everybody should have one. Uh, but John 19, John 20, we'll be there in a little bit. And while you get there, I want to ask you a question, a fairly serious question. I want to ask you, what are some of the craziest things you've done in your life just so that you would feel loved? Crazy things was one question. Crazy things you feel loved, so you feel loved, right? That goes a little deeper. What's some of the craziest things you've done in your life so that you would feel loved? We all wrestle with this. We know this, right? That, that we long to be loved. And it, that's not a bad thing. We're actually hardwired that way. God has, God has put inside of us a longing to be loved. But we all tend to have some insecurity about that. And I'm actually going to show you today that that insecurity comes from something that's warped inside of us because God has created us with a longing to be loved, but we're not sure we loved. And, and so the ego inside of us, right, the self inside of us does all these crazy things to try to convince ourselves that someone, that anyone truly loves us. I mean, think about all the trauma and drama that happened in life just because of this kind of insecurity. Now, romantically, Right, We change ourselves entirely to, to become what someone else wishes we were, just so they will like us. We stalk social media accounts so we can know everything about a person. We rush into physical intimacy when we know we shouldn't. We tattoo people's names on our arms. I'm not calling that dumb. But we do it after like three days, you know? Not quite enough time. We talk endlessly in relationships about our own needs without thinking about others. We continue to take someone back who is toxic for us, and we know they're toxic for us, but we're afraid to let them go because, well, then maybe no one else will love us. And it doesn't just affect the romantic side of our lives. Right? Think about all the ways insecurity and ego get in way of the way we live. We criticize others thinking it will make us feel better about ourselves. Never does, but we always think it will. We say yes to things we know we shouldn't say yes to because we're afraid of the rejection that might come if we say no. We sometimes live passively aggressive. Aggressively passive. However you want to say that, we live out this sense of I love you, but I want to control you. I want you to do what I want. 
We lie to ourselves. We mask our real feelings. Certainly we lie to others because we're afraid of what other people will think. Some of us live locked in depression simply because insecurity tells us no one, no one will ever love us. Do you know how much energy in our culture goes into this longing to be loved? I mean, think about it. Everybody you know, every single person you know, everybody in your family, everybody you work with, everybody in your neighborhood, every single person you know longs to be loved. And when we don't feel loved, we feel insecure. When we don't feel loved, we feel inadequate. When we don't feel loved, we feel incomplete. Makes great movies, right? You complete me. How long does you complete me last, romantically speaking? Humans go through great lengths to find someone, anyone who would love them for where, who they really are. We, we spend billions and billions of dollars on romance. We spend near endless hours in counseling because we're not sure if we're really loved. We spend inordinate and enormous amounts of emotional energy wrestling with whether a mom, a dad, a grandparent, a best friend really loves us. Our desire to feel loved, again, is driven by something deep inside of us. I think it's a good thing that was placed there by God. It's wired by God. We're hardwired with this longing to be loved. Does this, does this make sense? You would, you would sort of know this is true by life experience, right? But you would also know, I think, by life experience, that that gets warped really easily. And that inside of us, that longing to be loved quickly can turn into ego problems, to to problems driven by self. And frankly, if we want to put out sort of the psychology terms and set those aside and think of it just in terms of biblical terms, there is something inside of me that is warped, some sense in which I do fall short, some sense that I already know I'm not really enough or good enough, that we all struggle with what the Bible would just say is sin. We do things wrong we know we shouldn't do. We don't do the right things we should do. But much of that comes from this heart that is bent on trying to figure out, does anybody really care? And when we deep, deep dive into it, what we tend to find is that that insecurity that is real inside of us has an other side of the coin we don't like to talk about. Because if I'm honest, insecurity and ego, or if I could say it this way, insecurity and pride, two sides, same coin. Because we're obsessed with self. What if I told you that we already know the answer to that question, you are loved? What if, what if we already knew the, I mean, if we knew that we are truly loved, and not only loved, but loved by God, that God is real, that God has a name, that his name is Jesus, and he really loves me, not just loves everybody, but really loves me, that'd be like life-changing, wouldn't it? Soul-altering, really. And that's exactly what the writer of what we're going to read today, 
John in the Gospel of John. That's exactly what he came face to face with. That this love of Jesus was soul changing. Of course, a lot of us aren't so sure we have souls. We're actually beginning, just truth and advertising, right? We're beginning a series today we're calling Soul Care. Because I believe you have a soul. I don't know if you believe that, but I believe you have a soul. And I'm really wondering, you know, this far into the craziness of the last few years, how is your soul really doing? Now, I'm more than aware that there are many people in our world, and maybe some of us, who don't believe that the soul is real. That it's very common these days to say, hey, we don't have souls. Like, this body, this flesh and blood, like, this is all there is. And when this goes, then there's nothing. And yet, for a culture that often doesn't believe in souls, we have a lot of, uh, like, interesting phrases that involve the idea of the soul. I mean, think about this. We'll say, God rest her. God rest her soul. We'll say, I'm not going to tell a soul. We talk about needing to bear one's soul. We talk about how confession is good for the soul. We'll, we'll talk about how we need some time and some space to do some soul searching. We'll tell someone that we love them with all of our heart and all of our soul. We get down, we'll talk about having a heavy soul. Someone's wise, we'll say they have an old soul. You promise to keep a secret, you're not going to tell a living soul. You need to be serious with someone, you're going to pour out your soul to them. When you pour out your soul to them, you might have to tell them that you sold your soul to the devil. We speak of soul sisters, and life experiences that are soul crushing. We search for soulmates. Is it sort of proverbial thing that the eyes are the windows to the soul? So I'm going to ask you straight up, do you believe you have a soul? How is it? Truly. What if I told you today you don't have a soul? <laughs> You're fired, dude. <laughs> Thanks, came to Easter for that. Not in the sense of like this flesh and blood is all there is. What if I told you you don't have a soul? What if I told you you are a soul? You have a body. This body will die, it will be buried. Soul is eternal. Now, read the Bible, right? The soul and the body getting put back together someday, right? From dust we came, dust will return, God can take dust, he can put life back in it. Don't ask me why I'm going to say this, but I'm going to say it because it's where I'm at. People ask me all the time, they're like, you feel okay about cremation? Because I'm not so sure that God can put that back together. I'm like, have you read the Easter story? I mean, not that he was cremated, but death to life. I mean, I'm thinking after billions or hundreds or, or thousands of years, however long a body sits in a grave, it's going to deteriorate to dust. It's all going from dust back to life. Just my take. You know, we spend billions and billions of dollars caring for our bodies. Seriously. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, right? I mean, I need exercise, I need, but we spend billions on exercise, billions on how we look, billions on making sure that, you know, this is all presentable. You know why? Because we're not sure somebody really loves us. 
And because we've got to be impressive to other people. We've got to, we've got to make them like us. You know, I mean, you, have you seen surgery gone wrong? How much do we spend caring for our souls? I wonder. We're starting a series again called Soul Care today. A year ago, we did a series called, at Easter actually, we did a series called Soul Detox. It was about God filtering out those aspects of our lives that aren't any good for us. You know, it was bitterness and various other things, sin obviously, but more than that, that we were asking God to filter out of our lives. But let's be honest, having a healthy soul is about more than eliminating some things. It's about adding in the God kind of things into our life. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but when Jesus died for you and that life exchange that happens there, it's not just that your sins are placed on him, but when you become a Christian, a believer in Jesus, all the good that he is is placed inside of you. But we have to live that out. And so for the next six, eight weeks, we're going to practice soul care. Not just be on the defense when it comes to the things that are wrong, but play offense for our souls. So that said, I just want to jump into the notes if you're taking notes today. Soul care begins with the discovery that I am loved. The discovery that I am loved. And not just loved, but loved by the God who is that I am loved by the God of the universe, and the God of the universe has a name, and his name is Jesus, and he loves me. He loves me. You remember the first time you fell romantically in love? All those, actually, actually the, probably the right way to say it is the first time you fell romantically into lust or something of that nature, but but we fall in love when we're young. We get all those butterflies and all those things inside of us that feel so like confusing and exciting and good and how long does that last it's the right answer (laughs) so think about this some of us became believers in jesus like a long 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 time ago And we know Jesus loves us, but it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. Tell me something else. We just forget to appreciate how amazing, how deep, how incredible that love really is. That it's common in the believing life for us to go like, oh, yeah, God loves me. Check the box. Boom. But we're supposed to let that soak deep down. Like literally in our souls, like deep that God loves me, not just everyone, but me. So how can I know that I am loved by God? How can I know that I am loved by God? Not just God loves everybody, but God loves me. I'm going to give you two pathways that come out of the Easter story. We're going to read them both today, but let me set this up. We're in John 19, John 20. And the guy who wrote John, the gospel of John, is a guy named... Yeah, you guys are good. You guys are good, right? And so... Four biographies of Jesus in the Bible, four stories of Jesus, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what's interesting about John is that he writes his biography years later, in some sense decades later. And so John is 
filling in the gaps. When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus rose again. Word began to get out about that, but they didn't have the Bible as we know it back then. And eventually a letter from an apostle came or from someone came and, oh, here's the, bio, here's the story of Jesus. And people just soaked that up, right? And then another one came and it filled in the blanks a little bit. Another one came and it filled in the blanks a little bit. And that's kind of what happened. Mark came out and then Matthew and Luke came out with their gospels and they fill in the gaps, if you will. And then years later, years, years, decades later, John writes and he says, there's more. You, you got to know the more. In fact, what John does, if you really read the Gospel of John, what you get is that John is constantly telling us stories of individuals with Jesus. Really, think about it. All the people you wouldn't know, you wouldn't know about Nicodemus if you didn't have the Gospel of John. You wouldn't know of the woman caught in adultery in that story if you didn't have the Gospel of John. There's, there's story after story after story you wouldn't have because John just fills in the blanks about individuals. And John, of course, writes his most famous verse, right? What we would say is his most famous verse, chapter 3, verse 16. For God so love, but John goes further. Not just God loves the world, it's God loves me. Why do you say that, Brian? Let me show you. I threw some of these verses in your outline. I'm not going to read them all, but I want to show you that in the Gospel of John, he, he sort of puts himself in the story because he's very there. He's front and center to all of it, but he hides himself in the story. And so what John does is he calls himself, not by name, but he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. So one of them, John 13, verse 23, the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to Jesus. This is how John puts himself in the story, and we can debate all day long why he does this. I mean, some people would say this was like a rivalry thing. I mean, it begins to read, honestly, some of the, what we're going to read in just a minute, begins to read a little bit like a brother and a brother, or a brother and a sister, and they're going, mom loves me more than you? You know, one of those deals? He's like, no, 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 I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. Was John just like arrogant? Was, was John just going, look guys, he loved me, he didn't love y'all. I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. You just have to know that. Or is John, an old man at this point, writing this biography of Jesus, still captivated by the thought that God loves him? Jesus loves him. It's personal. Jesus loves me. John writes, and he uses the word love more than any of the other gospel writers. You take Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you add up all the times they use the word love. One of them uses it 17 times, another one 8 times, another one 19 times. You add it all up, and combined, they use the word love 44 times. But you read the gospel of John, and you find that John uses the word 56 times just in his gospel, and then he writes some other letters, and again, this is, not, this is not a book, the Bible. It's a library of ancient texts. It, it's, it's a collection of 66 ancient works. And John wrote, this guy, wrote five of them. The Gospel, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. And in 1 John, he uses the word love another 46 times. So you got 102 times. And he probably wrote 1 John about the same time. He's just still captivated by the love of God. Let me show you. There are two pathways that teach me I am loved in the Easter story. Pathway number one is the cross. Number one, Jesus loves me enough to sacrifice himself for my sins. 
to sacrifice himself, to die for my sins. Jesus loves me in spite of all that dumb insecurity that exists inside of me, despite all the sins I do, all the bad things I do, Jesus loves me. I'm going to pick it up, John 19. And I'm going to start reading, let's say, let's say verse 17. Carrying his own cross, Jesus went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side, Jesus in the middle. And you would note that one of those two others is, is the guy we often refer to as the thief on the cross. Right? I mean, I don't know about you, but what does it do for your theology when that thief on the cross says, you know, remember me when you come into your kingdom? He's acknowledging Jesus is the king, right? Remember me when you come into your kingdom and Jesus says, verily or truly or surely today you will be with me in paradise. Boy, it sure seems like that dude never went to church, never got baptized. He's clearly all broken and messed up. He's a thief. And Jesus says, hey, truly, verily, I say to you, surely, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't pray the sinner's prayer. He didn't walk down an aisle in church. He just bowed his heart to the king. Certainly didn't deserve it. Pilate, who's a leader in the day, government official, I don't have enough time to really explain him, but Pilate was sort of presiding over all of this, had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, so in all the languages that were spoken by the people of the day. And the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, and they wrote, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. John's telling us all this because Jesus really is the king of the Jews, but the Jewish people rejected him. You might even remember in the Christmas story, the Magi showed up, you know, the frankincense, gold, and myrrh guys. They showed up and they asked Herod, right, where is the, where's the one born king of the Jews, right? So this always had been about whether or not Jesus is the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, hey, what I have written, I have written. Of course, Pilate would have thought of himself more as not necessarily the king of the Jews, but certainly the one in charge of the Jews. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, verse 23, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. And this undergarment was seamless, which is telling us that it was, it was, it was about the only thing Jesus had that was really worth much. This garment was seamless, and it was woven in one piece from top to bottom. And they said, hey, let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. So they did something that's kind of like throwing dice, right? They gambled over who would get this garment. And John adds, this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. The one that said, and he quotes the 22nd Psalm here, they divided my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garment. Now this story really kind of odd in a way that John would insert this, but I think it's certainly worth noting, human beings at some level are always in it for what they can get, right? So these soldiers aren't any different than the rest of us. But when a celebrity comes along and touches something, it seems to be worth a little more. I mean, you know, you, we go to concerts and we want signed stuff, right? We want memorabilia and we, we want the signature of like the dude or the gal or the whoever's doing the concert. 
You know, have you heard, one time J.K. Rowling had a chair sold for $394,000. A chair. I guess Harry Potter came to birth and, you know, that. A lock of Justin Bieber's hair once sold for $40,600. Hair. It gets worse. Seriously, Britney Spears chewed gum once sold for $14,000. Well, what are you going to do? Chew it again? Oops, I... $14,000. These soldiers, of course, were focused on what they could sort of get out of the deal, but the man who would hang on that cross is concerned about what he could give. And John points out that this had always been the plan of God. And it goes back to the 22nd Psalm. And you've probably heard of it. The 22nd one's the one that comes before the 23rd one, right? And the 23rd one you're familiar with, vaguely maybe, like the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That, that one, that's Psalm 23. But the one before it, you couldn't quote it for anything, but you should read it today because it's all about this moment. In fact, the Old Testament is filled with tons of, of light illusions and direct prophecies of this slice of time, this moment, that this would happen, that the Messiah, God's son, would be crucified. You can find it not only in the 22nd Psalm, it's in Isaiah 53. We've been studying the book of Daniel lately. We finished that just last week. It's all over the book of Daniel. Jeremiah 31, Zechariah 12, Micah 5, Isaiah 9. I could go on and on and on and on. Verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, this is John, right? He said, when he saw the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to that disciple, he said, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And I want to just, before I keep reading, I want to note a couple of things there. One, it's very, very common for us to say John was the only disciple at the foot of the cross. No. He was the only apostle at the foot of the cross. He was the only one of the male disciples at the foot of the cross. All the other guys fled for their life. When he was arrested, they ran. And, and they ran for their lives. And they later heard about this. But John was there. He saw it with his own eyes. But he was not the only disciple there because these women were there. And that's, that's just very much worth noting. And what's interesting about this is that Jesus sees his mom and he's moved with heart and concern and compassion. And he says to her, woman, here is your son. And he points to the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, of course. And then he points to John and he says, here's your mother. And John adds that from that time on, this disciple took her, the mother of Jesus, into his home. See, Jesus puts us, this cross and resurrection thing creates a new family. And Jesus puts us in a new family, and that new family is to be characterized by love. And John got it, and Mary got it, and we're sitting here today because we're that family. 
drives me nuts when, not our church, but when other churches go at each other in such ugly ways because that's not the way it's supposed to be. This is the way it's supposed to be. It's love. Verse 28. Later, knowing all that was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Now notice again that he's back to the scripture was fulfilled. And he is just saying to us that, again, this had always been the plan of God. The plan of God had always been that Jesus would love me enough to see past my sin, die for my sin, forgive me of my sin, and save me from my sin. Jesus said, I am thirsty, and a jar of wine vinegar was put there. And so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and they lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is is finished that's actually one word in the original language in the in the in the greek it's one word the word is tetelestai it is finished and with that he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit there is so much going on in this word it is finished to his executioners might have meant that their job was done To the religious types and the religious leaders, the Pharisees and others who wanted him crucified, it is finished might have meant that their enemy was gone, that they had gotten rid of a troublemaker. To the disciples who loved him, who followed him, and who left their lives behind to follow him, it is finished, likely for them, for John. meant this was all over. Hope was lost. But to Jesus, it is finished meant something entirely different. This is not a cry of defeat. It is a cry of victory. You see, in their day, they used the word tetelestai in a lot of different contexts. Artists, for instance, would use this word when they finished a great work of art, a great masterpiece, if you will. They would stand back, and when they were done, they would look back at it, and they would say, it is finished, tetelestai. Priests would use this word when people would bring an offering they would bring a sacrifice you remember the ancient religious system was built on sacrifice for sins this is why we talk about jesus and his death his sacrifice on the cross they had sacrifices for sins people had to bring an animal of some kind to be the sacrifice for sins and it was to be a whole animal a complete not just a you know gimpy legged animal like the one you couldn't sell it was to be the best the sacrifice, and when they would bring it, the priests would look at the sacrifice and they would declare it is complete, it is perfect. That would be the same word, to telestai. Merchants would use this because you know everything in this world has revolved around cash. Nothing new under the sun. So they didn't have computers to keep track of that, but you better bet if you owed them money back in the day, they knew how to keep track of it. Right? They, they, had, they had it written down somewhere, somehow, some way. They were going to get you to pay them back. And so when you owed debt, it was on record somewhere. And when you finally paid off that last dime, and you had the note to burn, you know, you, they would stamp on that. Is finished, is paid in full to tell us now. Servants would use this word with a master. When a master would give them a great project to go complete, they would go off to complete said project, and when it was finished, they would come back to say to the master, to tell us, die, it's, it's done. 
it is finished. Jesus was telling us that all of the religious sacrifice was finished, that the portrait, the great painting of God's love was finished, that the debt, that the price for my sin was paid in full, that it was finished, that the plan that the Father had always had as the Master was finished. I don't know if you've noticed, but our world wants to cancel sinners. Just write them off. Jesus loves them enough to die for them. And when I say sinners, I mean you and me. The world, on one hand, doesn't want to admit that something such as sin is a real deal, but on the other hand, wants to cancel people for doing things that aren't really a problem but are a problem, which is a lot of tiptoeing and tap dancing around what the Bible has said all along. We all fall short of the glory of God. And John's point here is that Jesus didn't cancel us, but he died to end sin. And he died to forgive us. And John looks at that and says, that's how I know that God loves me. I said, Brian, how do you know that? Well, let me show you. I told you he wrote five things in the New Testament. Let me show you some of those others. He began the other writing I referred to as the first John. He began it with these words, 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. He said, that which was from the beginning, he's talking about Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And then I'm going to skip a little bit, but I'm going to give you 1 John 3.16. You know, you know the other 3.16, right? John 3.16 is super famous, but I bet you don't know 1 John 3.16. It says, this is how we know what love is. How? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we had to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Notice, he connects all the dots we talked about today. Jesus laid down his life. That's how we know that God loves us, the cross. And we had to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. He gives us a new family. It's all right there. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The picture John had in mind was the cross. That's path one. The cross is how I know I'm loved, which leads me to the second point. The cross is how I know I am loved, and the resurrection is how I know it's all real. It's all real. Let me be straight. If Jesus died, and they buried him, and he never rose to life, none of this would have been written. And a lot of people would say, oh, yeah, 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 these dudes would have made up this story so that they could, like, profit somehow, and they could say Jesus rose from the dead when he didn't really rise from the dead. Now, straight up, let me ask you, have you ever asked 12 people to tell a lie for you? The same lie. Over and over and over. Twelve people lie for you over and over and over and never recant that lie. You think that works? Like, you know, the light with the, you get in front of the CIA or the FBI or whoever, and they're going to lie and say you were over here when you were really over there. And you think, you think they're, you can get 12 people to never recant? So here's the thing. These 12 apostles 11 of them died for the belief that Jesus died and rose again. One of them did not die in the sense of being executed for that belief. That one that did not is the guy writing this 
His name is John. And as an old, old man, he writes the Gospel of John, and he says, you have to know, you have to know it's personal. Jesus loves you. And you have to know he's not dead. He's alive. It's real. I saw him with my own eyes, and I believed. Keep reading the story. I'm just going to not read the rest of 19, but I'm going to summarize it. Here's what you get in the rest of 19. You get this sense that they've got to quickly get Jesus and the other thieves, the others off the crosses because, because there were some religious things going on with the Sabbath. And then John adds, at verse 35, chapter 19, I just have to read this verse to you. The man who saw it, right, the disciple whom Jesus loved, has given, it, has given this testimony. And his testimony is true. And he knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. He says, I saw it and I've written it down that you may believe. Notice the words saw and believe. So I'm going to pick up verse 20. Right before this, Jesus is buried in a borrowed grave. We don't have time for the story, but Nicodemus, two other guys we wouldn't know about, Joseph of Arimathea, right? They're secret followers of Jesus. They're religious leaders. They give him a king's burial. Verse 1 of chapter 20, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. When, we, when she went to the tomb, do you think she expected a living Jesus? Not at all. He died. She saw it. This was a done deal. He's going to be dead. And she came running to Simon Peter. She saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple... You know, the one Jesus loved. And they said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where to put him. And so Peter and the other disciple, you know, the one Jesus loved, started running for the tomb. And both were running, but the other disciple, you know, the one Jesus loved, just saying, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. This is where I say, this sounds a little bit like brother and sister going, mom loves me more. This other disciple bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple, you know, the one Jesus loved, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. Now notice these next words. He saw and believed. He saw and believed. He just said, look, hey, this is real. This is real. And Jesus really loves me. And he's not dead Dude. Later, Jesus shows up. He's totally alive. He's walking around. He appears to the disciples a number of times. He appears to some of them sort of separately from others. He appeared to 500 people at one time. This is proof that this love is all real. And so I've been trying to convince us today that the real answer, and this is the one thing the message is about, the real answer to all my insecurities is this. It's this new identity that I am loved by Jesus. 
I am loved by Jesus. We seek out our identities in a billion different places. We think our identity is found in who we love and how we love in our relationships. We think that our identity is found in our performance, how successful or unsuccessful we are, how much money we do or don't make, how great we do or don't look, how many friends we do or don't have, how, bu- how big our business is or isn't, how cool our job is or isn't. We think our identity is found in all those crazy places, and we're unfulfilled because we're made to be loved by Jesus. And the real answer to all my ego problems, all my sin problems, all my, all my identity issues, the real answer is I am loved by Jesus. Now note that this is very different than the way the world loves. Our world is built on transactional love. Transactional love says, I will love you when you, and you fill in the blank. Transactional love says, I'll love you if, or I'll love you if you don't. We, we think God works this way, and so we say, God will love me when I'm really good, when I go to church enough. God will love me if I, you know, serve him in some way. God will love me if I don't do such and such sins. God won't love me if I do certain things. That's transactional love. John says, God loves me, period. So soul care starts with love, ends with love. Begins with love and ends with this new identity that I am loved. And I ask you two commitments today. One, have you seen and believed? And if you've not, then I want to just straight up challenge you to see it today and believe today. Become a Jesus follower, a Christian for the very first time. And if you've already made that commitment in your life, then maybe you'd make the commitment to let this identity of love unfold for the next six weeks. That you'd practice soul care. You'd say, you know what, I'll commit for the next six weeks. I'll give God six weeks. I want to live out of this identity that I am loved. And I'm going to put into practice what we preach here, which kind of implies that, you know, you're going to come back. I don't know if you know this, but we do this every Sunday. You know, six weeks. Give us six weeks. Put into practice what we're talking about, this soul care stuff. Live out of this identity. You commit to that. I should mention, we do this every Sunday, but it's not at these times. Times are all weird because it's Easter, but we're usually here at 9, 1045, right? We'd love to see you any Sunday. So two commitments. I just happen to always end with two prayers. Will you pray them now? The first is a prayer of salvation. The second, where you can see and believe. The second is a prayer of application. We commit to the next six weeks. Salvation. If you need Jesus today, would you pray like this? Just say, dear Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you that it was personal. Please forgive me. I don't deserve it. Take over my life. I thank you that you're alive. I see and I believe. So be my God. Fill me with your love. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's really that simple. It truly is. If you made that decision for the first time today, man, I'd love you to tell somebody. You can tell somebody you came with. You can tell me. You can tell me on the communication card. You can write me and tell me. Email is B-R-I-A-N. It's Brian at harvestchurcheugene.com. 
You can tell me in just a minute outside if you're online. Certainly find a way to let us know. Have you prayed that prayer a lot of years ago, but you need this love of Jesus to be fresh, and you'll commit today to give it six weeks and put this into play, into practice for the next six weeks. Would you pray this prayer of application with me? Dear Jesus, thank you that you also died for my sins. Thank you that you're alive. And thank you for the reminder today that you love me. So help me to live like it. Help it to drive my identity. May your love invade all of my attitudes and actions, all of my beliefs and behaviors, all my choices and decisions. Help me to put your love and all we learn the next six weeks into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. He is risen, y'all. He loves you. I realize that I, I don't count as much as him, but I love you too. I am so glad that you are here. We're going to sing about his resurrection one more time. Why don't you stand up with us?